Great. Good evening, Agat. As she is on, because we're waiting for a gate. As she is, we are so creed. Luckily, she's Agat. As an girl, a horse can yacht and shot in your house and yacht show a horse. I'm very grateful indeed to uh, Siobhan and to the rest of the staff of the library here in the academy um, for asking me to give this lecture today, and also indeed to Mark Cable and the Irish Texts Society, which is also involved in the organisation of this lecture. It's lovely to have this as part of Heritage Week. And as I say, it's a, it's a great opportunity for me. And I'd actually forgotten until Siobhan mentioned it there that this um, lecture is going to be available on podcast as well. So presumably all of my natterings at the beginning are going to be there for posterity too. So <laughs> whatever, whatever they're worth, and that certainly wouldn't be very much. The title of my talk, as Siobhan mentioned there, is From Medieval Text to Mobile. And I suppose what I was trying to focus on here is one of the aspects of folklore and popular tradition that I find most fascinating and that I know a lot of other people find really interesting as well. And that is the idea of the persistence of themes or ideas or elements, you know, sometimes over hundreds of years, possibly even thousands of years. So that's something that we think belongs completely and exclusively to a bygone era suddenly pops up again, albeit perhaps in a somewhat different guise in the present day and in the contemporary era. And as I say, it's one of the most fascinating uh, aspects of the, um, of the subject, this extraordinary longevity that you find attaching to certain elements, uh, certainly of folk medicine, because that does provide us with a very good example of the kind of persistence of themes that I was talking about. So what I'm going to be doing um, and indeed, I was talking with Siobhan about the title of this lecture as well, which is Medieval Text to Mobile. And what I'd intended by that was the idea of going from medieval, medieval text to mobile text. But then when I was looking at it later, I was saying that could look like medieval text to medieval mobile or something like that. But anyway, hopefully most of you did get what the title was about. Uh, in dealing with this topic, I'm going to be drawing on the resources of two of the great repositories of Irish tradition and culture, which we have, which we're lucky enough to have at our disposal. That is um, the National Folklore Collection, housed in University College Dublin, and obviously the institution where we find ourselves today at the Royal Irish Academy. Um, both institutions, I suppose, both collections of material have a certain amount in common in that both originated to some extent as a kind of a, a rescue operation when it was felt that there was a danger of a great deal of our tradition, our written literature, obviously in the case of the Academy, and our oral literature and oral tradition in the case of the National Folklore Collection that was in danger of, of, of disappearing and of being lost. And uh, as I say, at, at, at you know, very different periods, but both repositories attempted to redress that situation and to, um, to, uh, to move in as a kind of a rescue operation to, to, sa to save this material uh, for posterity. In any case, my talk, as I said, will concern itself to a large extent with the kind of interface that exists between these two collections. Now, Ireland, as you all know, has a great richness of medieval literature on a scale and of a quality that is not unique in Europe, but which is certainly not all that common either. And many examples of this richness, many gems of medieval Irish literature, are held right here uh, in this building, in the library of the Academy, under the guardianship of the Academy, as we, we know, as an extraordinary window into the life and learning and culture of Ireland in the Middle Ages. Um, founded in 1785, as the Academy website itself tells us, the Library of the Academy holds the largest collection of Irish manuscripts in a single repository, 
including such treasures as the Book of the Don Cow, the Lower Brack, the Book of Valimote, the Annals of the Four Masters, and so much more. Now, I want to say a couple of words. I mean, again, there's, there's so much more to say about the Academy, but this is just a very, very brief overview in a couple of sentences. Um, I want to say a couple of words about the archives of the National Folklore Collection as well and the holdings that exist there. But before I go on to do that, I think perhaps a few words of definition uh, mightn't be um, out of place, they mightn't go amiss. Uh, the whole idea of trying to define what folk medicine is. Folk medicine is something which stands as a particularly vibrant and lively uh, aspect of folklore and popular tradition today. Uh, putting it briefly, and as you can see on screen there, folk medicine might be described as being concerned with healing practices and cures which circulate in popular culture and in oral tradition as opposed to formally regulated medicine involving professional training folk medicine might thus be described as unofficial medicine if you want to put it like that as opposed to official scientific biomedicine which is all very regulated and legislated for and so on folk medicine in fact is concerned with an entire complex of beliefs and associated practices which give us an insight into popular ideas and perceptions of healing in the past and in the present and indeed it might be argued into the entire process of healing itself now folk medicine is uh, a serious business and it is accepted as such and acknowledged as such by many um, prestigious organizations who would also be rooted very much and deal very much with the kind of the more official side of medicine, I suppose you could say, the regulated uh, scientific side of medicine. And one of these organizations is the World Health Organization, or the WHO. And I just thought it might be interesting to actually put their definition of traditional medicine, as they call it, uh, rather than folk medicine. And I would actually prefer the designation traditional medicine myself, because I think the word folk can carry connotations maybe of tweeness and something that isn't relevant to the present day. So traditional medicine is the term that they use. And they define traditional medicine as follows, as you can see there on screen. Traditional medicine refers to the knowledge, skills, and practices based on the theories, beliefs, and experiences indigenous to different cultures used in the maintenance of health and in the prevention, diagnosis, improvement, or treatment of physical and mental illness. Traditional medicine covers a wide variety of therapies and practices which vary from country to country and from region to region. And the definition continues, traditional medicine has been used for thousands of years with great contributions made by practitioners to human health particularly as primary healthcare providers at the community level. All kind of obvious, I suppose, but nonetheless, it's interesting to kind of see it spelt out like that, especially by an organization like the WHO. Uh, traditional medicine has maintained its popularity worldwide against all the apparent odds, which is a point I'll be returning to in a moment. And according to the WHO, since the 1990s, its use has surged in many developed and developing countries. An interesting point. You know, why is that in a time and in an era when modern medicine is pretty freely available to most of us? And yet folk medicine has far from disappeared. Quite the opposite, in fact. Anyway, uh, as you can gather from that, traditional medicine is something which is taken very seriously by the World Health Organization as a potentially uh, valuable resource for healthcare. Elsewhere on uh, the WHO website, uh, WHO website, we read, 
The World Health Organization Traditional Medicine Strategy 2014 to 2023 was developed and launched in response to the World Health Assembly Resolution on Traditional Medicine. The strategy aims to support member states in developing proactive policies and implementing action plans that will strengthen the role traditional medicine plays in keeping populations healthy. So anyway, kind of a, I suppose, a seal of... Um, uh, approval there to a certain extent, or at least an indication that traditional medicine is, uh, at the very least, something that's worthy of investigation. Now, something that, by the way, you can all hear me, can you? Something that the WHO does mention, as I just said, is the fact that um, despite what we might expect, traditional medicine continues to be used by people today in the Western world and in the developed world. And this uh, continuing survival and popularity of, well, certainly of aspects of traditional medicine, at least, is of particular interest. I mean, we're not talking just about kind of remote indigenous tribes in far-flung parts of the world here or, you know, rural so-called peasant populations in the past or whatever it might be. The WHO is very, very strong in making the point that folk medicine is a resource that we can draw from uh, today. And this is something which has been written about at some length by a man called David Hufford who is the, the director of the Center for Humanistic Medicine at the University of uh, Pennsylvania. And in one of his publications, he writes as follows on this point. He says, the modern picture of who uses folk medicine also has undergone radical changes. It was long assumed that folk medicine persisted in places where modern scientific medicine was not available or as a survival among early generations of immigrants from traditional societies. He's talking primarily about the situation in the United States here. In any case, he continues, it was assumed that higher education and familiarity with scientific medicine would result in sole reliance on medical doctors and hospitals. It is now evident, however, that the changes in folk medicine brought about by modern communication, geographic mobility, and other forces that reduce cultural isolation have not led to the demise of folk medicine. Quite the contrary. A study published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 1993 found that 34% of Americans had used what the investigators called unconventional interventions within the preceding 12 months. Among those practices mentioned in the survey were several forms of, obviously, traditional medicine, folk medicine, including herbs and spiritual healing. This high rate of use came in spite of the exclusion from the survey of basic prayer for healing, which of course is getting us into the area of religion and religious belief. But from a scientific point of view, it is very often categorized as spiritual healing for obvious reasons and as an aspect of folk healing. Um, and as uh, David Hufford said, this in fact is probably the most widely used variety of folk healing. The survey also found, as have other studies in the United States and Europe, that use of these traditions was positively associated with higher education instead of the opposite. So anyway, interesting points to ponder. Um, he also writes, at present a variety of factors, including the increasing costs of high-tech medicine, very good point, a widely expressed desire for a philosophy of healing that is more holistic 
uh, instead of being something that's terribly much focused on the specific area of the body where the complaint lies, and ready access to many cultural traditions due to modern communication and migration patterns have led to what he calls an efflorescence of folk medicine traditions. So anyway, just the whole idea that you know it's not something that is to do with the, the, the dim and distant past. It has a real kind of a bearing on today and a real relevance to today as well. At this point, however, it might be time for the disclaimer that I usually feel the need to put in which is that, you know, while many aspects of folk medicine clearly do work for whatever reason, I mean, herbal remedies being a very good example of this, at the same time, you know, it, it must be said that I'm not trying to argue here for the effectiveness of all forms of folk medicine. That would be a very foolish thing to do. Modern medicine is obviously um, a great gift to us all, and it is capable of... Um, of uh, bringing about many um, uh, miracles, I mean, it, conventional medical practice. Uh, but having said that, and just to return to a point I made a moment ago, it does certainly appear, at the very, very least, that traditional medicine or folk medicine meets a need that scientific medicine or official medicine is, is certainly failing to address uh, fully, at the very least. Um, as I say there, uh, so official medicine appears to be um, somewhat remiss, I suppose you could say, uh, in this respect. And I would argue that there has to be a reason for this phenomenon, that is the continuing popularity of folk medicine. And I would also say that that reason is surely worthy of investigation as an insight into human nature and human culture, apart from its possible value, uh, obviously in healthcare and medicinal terms. In any case, to move on to sources of folk medicine, um, as you saw on screen there a moment ago, the National Folklore Collection is housed in University College Dublin, and that is actually the body which has taken over from the Irish Folklore Commission. The holdings of the National Folklore Collection include the manuscript collections of the Irish Folklore Commission, which in its turn was founded in 1935, so some time after the Academy. But at the same time, in time to document many aspects of um, traditional lifestyles and so on, which were starting to disappear at that point as modernity was starting to, um, to take over life in Ireland and obviously elsewhere as well. Uh, the commission was established in the mid-1930s and it had at its remit uh, the documentation and recording of the oral history, the beliefs, the popular traditions, the legends, the stories, the music, the songs, the lifestyles, the work practices, and the material culture of the ordinary people of Ireland. In that, in its carrying out its remit, the Commission was spectacularly successful, I think it's true to say, uh, certainly partly due to the tireless efforts of people like Seamus O'Dellarga and Kevin Danaher and Sean O'Sullivan, whose names will be familiar to many of you, I'm quite sure. And also, of course, uh, thanks to the extraordinary work of the men and women who collected material on the ground, so to speak, for the, uh, the Commission, uh, writing it out and sending it back to HQ, to the Commission headquarters in Dublin, um, where it became part of the, the holdings of the IFC, which, as I said, uh, is now contained uh, as part of the National Folklore Collection uh, in University College Dublin. All human life, you could say, was in the Commission's collections, relating as they did to virtually every aspect of human experience, including, not surprisingly, the areas of health and illness, such a fundamental concern, obviously, for people in the past as in the present, as we, we might 
you'd expect. Now, in his classic work, A Handbook of Irish Folklore, Sean O'Sullivan, who was the archivist with the Irish Folklore Commission, he devotes an entire chapter, chapter seven, as you can see there, to the subject of folk medicine. And um, the Handbook of Irish Folklore, which I know many of you are also familiar with, it actually consists of a very long list of questions, really 699 pages of questions to be precise, because it was written originally as a guidebook for those who are carrying out collecting work for the Irish Folklore Commission. But what's interesting about the attitude of Sean O'Sullivan in compiling the handbook in the first place is the fact that he didn't just give us a listing of various illnesses and the remedies for those various complaints and diseases. He also approached all kinds of other areas, touching on attitudes to health and illness, people's perceptions of health and illness, proverbial sayings and expressions about health and illness, the kinds of illnesses that had a certain social stigma, for example, attaching to them. So the whole area of folk medicine is highly contextualized in Sean O'Sullivan's handbook. And of course, this in turn is extremely valuable in terms of the work of people who are working in, in uh, areas like community medicine or preventative medicine or whatever it might be today. And I think it's worth commenting as well that certainly I have noticed myself in the last decade or so that I think there is an increasing interest on the part of people coming from an official medical background, so to speak. Uh, there's an increasing interest on their part in folk medicine in terms of you know, what they can learn from that and what they can uh, gain uh, in terms of insights into people's ideas, as I said, of health and illness and the whole, the whole socio-medical aspects of health and illness, if you want to put it like that. And that the, the area of social medicine is also a growing field in conventional um, medicinal terms. In any case, Sean O'Sullivan starts with uh, general questions on health and illness and goes on to talk about the diagnosis of disease, uh, medical practice in the past, basic forms of surgery that were carried out, medical equipment and so on, the care of the sick, before he comes finally to this alphabetical listing of diseases and ailments of one kind or another, uh, in alphabetical order, starting with uh, abscesses, acidity, acne, what a lovely thing to be talking about at lunchtime on a, on a, on a Wednesday, a glorious Wednesday afternoon, and continuing for a further five or six pages with his alphabetic listing of various complaints to warts, and whooping cough, and wounds, and worms, and various other things. And uh, what happens is that the Handbook of Irish Folklore correlates with the index, the old-fashioned card index, which we have in the National Folklore Collection, so that if you're looking for material on a particular subject, you look it up in the handbook, and that, that then correlates with the card index, and then you find references to whatever it is you're particularly interested in. Just in order to show you uh, what some of this material looks like, Dating from 1935, as I said, this is material recorded in the area of South Roscommon by Jim Delaney, who is a full-time collector with the Irish Folklore Commission and then with the Department of Irish Folklore in UCD, which was the immediate successor to the Irish Folklore Commission. This is material recorded by Jim from a man, a farmer called John Kenny in South Roscommon. And again, I don't want to dwell on it in detail. You could give a whole lecture on, on I suppose, these few pages alone. But he starts off talking about the use of cobwebs to stop bleeding, which is something that you still find done and which is quite an effective remedy, apparently. Somebody was telling me about this recently in terms of dehorning cattle. That would work quite well. Then he goes on to talk about a, a lame, um, a mare who had a lame leg uh, belonging to John Kenny and travellers, or gypsies as he calls them, who were camped nearby. One of them came up with a concoction which he made himself 
which healed the mare without having to resort to a vet or to, again, conventional official medical practice. Then he goes on to talk about a cure for burns from an elderly woman called Biddy of the Roads, who used to simply walk the roads and stay in people's houses. And this was a cure involving lard and a laurel leaf, which this woman actually carried out on, on John Kenny's son. And again, I don't want to go into this in too much detail, but it does actually highlight one of the interesting sociological aspects of folk medicine in that, not always, but to a significant extent, the kinds of people who had cures were quite often those who might be regarded as marginalised in society, of somewhat low status, of lesser prestige or standing somehow. And this was a way that collectively these people too were given their place, their role and their function and their own value in society, which anyway is just an interesting aside, which you know we won't go into today, but it is an interesting aspect of folk medicine, which several people have, have written about and which I think rings true for the Irish context. Then you have the school's manuscripts collection, as well as the main manuscripts collection. And this was a one-off collection done in the late 1930s, which many of you are familiar with as well, I'm sure. Uh, the school's collection involved the, um, uh, the, the use, for want of a better word, of the primary school children of the country to collect the uh, traditions and folklore of the, the 26 counties of Ireland. They never got it off the ground, unfortunately, in the six counties, but it was done throughout the six or the 26 counties. And there was a little booklet issued to all of the primary schools in the country at the time with about 50 suggested topics which it was felt that school children, primary school children as they were, would be able to collect information fairly easily about. And one of these topics, thankfully for our uh, um, uh, there are resources on folk medicine today. One of those topics was actually local cures, uh, covering areas, as you can see there, like holy wells, the use of boundaries and thresholds, herbs and poultices, certain people who had various cures, and so on and so forth. So the school's manuscripts collection is also a wonderfully rich source of material in folk medicine in Ireland and also I mean it's right up there internationally as well as a very important resource for people who are interested in this subject because of the sheer quantity the extraordinary amount of material it contains as well as the quality anyway having established all of this great richness and we will be looking at a couple of examples from the school's manuscripts in in a couple of minutes um having established this great richness of material um it's also, I think it's worth noting that many of these little items of tradition uh, have a surprisingly distinguished and uh, long-legged, so to speak, pedigree, and many of them actually go back a long way. There is, in other words, a very interesting historical backdrop attaching to many aspects of folk medicine, uh, which is certainly of great interest in terms of the antiquity and the possible continuity which it displays. Now, this is not to suggest that an item of folk medicine which doesn't have this long pedigree attaching to it is lacking in, in value, but at the same time, it does add another uh, layer of interest and a kind of a historical depth, as I say, to the material. There is a considerable corpus of literature internationally uh, which tells us about medicinal practices from ancient times right through the classical period and right up to the Middle Ages. This includes the extraordinary Ebers papyrus from ancient Egypt going back to the 16th century BC 
um, which is obviously very old indeed. And then you have the works of the doctors of the early civilizations of Greece and Rome, such as Hippocrates, Dioscorides, Pliny the Elder, uh, Galen, and so on. All of these names remaining very, very influential and prominent, you know, right into the Middle Ages and even beyond in some cases. Galen was known as the divine Galen because people attached such trust and importance to his prescriptions and to his medical knowledge right into the Middle Ages, you know, over a thousand years years after, uh, after he lived. Um, so you had all of these major names in early medicine, including then as we get into the medieval period and kind of skip the Dark Ages, because it was the Dark Ages, obviously. And then you have many other names um, on the continent of Europe and indeed in these islands as well, including, as you can see there, Hildegard von Bingen, Albert the Great, uh, two very important German medics of their period. And you also, of course, have other people like John of Gaddesden, the Englishman who wrote his famous and very influential Rosa Anglica at the beginning of the 14th century. And of course, here, I've actually forgotten that, but here we have another nice connection with the holdings of the Royal Irish Academy in that the Rosa Anglica was translated by, I think it was Nicholas O'Hickey in the early 15th century. And there's a copy of that here in the, in the Academy's library as well. Anyway, without wanting to kind of labor this point too much, because these are all international names, obviously, but I think it's worth making the point that early and medieval and early modern sources do show a very interesting degree of overlap at the very least. You know, we can't presume it's continuity, but certainly there are very, very definite and distinct parallels between many of these earlier sources and modern and contemporary folk tradition. Just a couple of really small examples of this, just, just very quickly to show you what I mean. And I'm really cherry picking here. These are just very arbitrary examples uh, picked you know, very much at random. There are so many other examples of the same type of thing that we could talk about. From uh, near Mullingar in County Westmeath, we have the title page of the school of, is it Balanay or Balan, Balan, I'm not too sure how you pronounce this. Anybody from Westmeath here, no? It's Balanay, is it? Right. Uh, thanks for that, where the teacher was Mrs. Farrell. And you can see here, this is very typical of the information you get in the school's collection, a listing of herbs and their uses, not just their medicinal uses, mind you. We're told that ivy, I think it is, is good for removing stains. Uh, well, dandelion is a good blood purifier, which is medicinal, I suppose you could say. But all kinds of uses are in here, as well as the medicinal uses. But you can see at the very bottom of the next page, in the continuation of this piece, we're told that celandine is used as a cure for jaundice and uh, eczema, isn't it, I think? Um, in any case, and this is something that you also find in the writings of Pliny and Dioscorides, going right back to the first century AD, where you have exactly the same plant noted for its detoxifying properties. So, you know, again, you can see, not, not, not surprisingly, I mean, why wouldn't it be like that? But you can see that there are all these uh, parallels and overlaps between the modern material and some of the very, very ancient material. Another example here from Wexford, from Tara Hill School in the area of Gorey. And this tells us at the end of the page here, this is slightly blurred to me, but there's a, a, a plant which is called alicompane, I think is what it's called there. Can you see that? Um, and it says that basically this is a, a plant whose roots grow out to the size of a potato basket, which of course everybody at that time would have been familiar with. And then you chop up, you dig up its root and you chop it up and you fry it in a pan over the fire until it dries. And then the account continues. You can possibly see that better than I can. I think you mix it with milk, is that right? And it's used for coughs and colds in any case. So, you know, fairly detailed description there. In this case, 
Ella campaign, which is the Ali campaign, which the children in Tara Hill were writing about, is actually noted uh, again in some of the early classical sources, including Pliny, although I think he mentions it as being good for digestive problems. But we also have uh, Ella campaign or horse heel, as it's also called, noted in John Gerard's famous herbal of the late 16th century, where he writes about it as being used as an expectorant, so you know exactly as you get in the school's collection in the 1930s. In any case, what I want to focus on today, however, uh, is really what, what I want to talk about for the second half of the, uh, the talk, it is really material that we find in the library of the Royal Irish Academy here and the way in which that shows very interesting connections with later material. This is the famous Book of Ballymote. Um, which is held here, obviously, in the Academy, and which I'm sure many of you are very familiar with. Uh, the page from the Book of Ballymote that's on screen there is actually the, the first page of the um, the Liar Gawala, the Book of Invasions, which describes, you know, the, the mythology of the various groups who are meant to have come to Ireland uh, in the the, um, the the prehistoric era, I suppose you could say. Uh, the Book of Ballymote is, as I mentioned earlier, one of the gems of the. Um, library and the holdings of the Royal Irish Academy, described on the Academy website as an iconic and hugely important 14th century manuscript, the Book of Ballymote, contains key texts such as the Book of Invasions, the Gawala, the first page of which we see here, the Book of Rights, Din Hianachus, or place name lore and so on, uh, written mostly in Irish at Ballymote Castle in County Sligo, we are told. Right, now, the reason I want to talk about this is because the Book of Invasions is a text which appears in various early Irish manuscripts, including, obviously, the Book of Ballymote. But the Battle of Moy Thorough, which is this great, Ka Moy Thorough, as you can see there, this great primordial battle that took place in prehistory. Uh, there were actually two battles of Moy Thorough, as I'm sure, again, many of you will know. It's notoriously complicated if you try to disentangle the first battle of Moy Thorough from the second battle of Moy Thorough, and we don't really need to do that for the purposes of this talk today anyway. So just take it from me that the battle of Moy Thorough involved this combat, this battle, obviously, between the Thuahidjedanan, who were the mystical otherworld race par excellence in the early Irish literature, and these other supernatural groups, the Fairbolgs and the Fomorians, as you can also see there. Uh, the battles were said to have taken place in, in the west of Ireland, near Cong in County Mayo, and in South Sligo, respectively. Um, th there is no reason to believe that the battle actually took place, but it does involve a very interesting crystallization of a theme that is actually found in many Indo-European cultures, which is you know, the clashes between these two great supernatural groups. Uh, and interests. In any case, our interest in the Battle of Moitura contains the wonderful Dean Kert, whose name can be spelt in a variety of ways. I've gone with Elizabeth Gray's spelling here because she is uh, one of the people who has edited one of the classic texts of the Battle of Moitura. Dean Kert was, if the Tuhedjedalan were the otherworld race par excellence, um, Dean Kert was the uh, mythological or mythical physician in early Irish literature par excellence. Um, my late and much lamented colleague, Dario Hogan, who many of you would also have known, of course, describes Dean Kert as follows. A mythical physician in early Irish literature, the original meaning of the name seems to have been he who travels swiftly, and it may in fact have been a pseudonym for a god of healing. Dean Kirk is mentioned very early in the literature. Reference in 7th and 8th century texts 
have him as a physician and as an arbitrator on matters concerning leeches, especially. An incantation against ailments refers to the salve or the ointment which Dean Kirk left with his family so that whatever it is laid on is healed. A 9th century glossary directly calls him the healing sage of Ireland, and a later writer repeats this description and calls him a god of health. Uh, in a 10th century text, Dean Kerth is described as going roads of great healing, and medieval writers in general made him the physician of the Tuhe Jedanan, as I just said, an adept at magical cures, and in that role he occurs in several texts, including in the mythological cycle in the account of the Battle of Moitura. Now, um, as you can see there yourselves, uh, I want to, um, uh, you know, you have a kind of a summing up of uh, some of Dean Kirk's more famous exploits, I suppose you could say there. Uh, but, but we can see for a start that, first of all, Dean Kirk made use of many techniques and procedures which are still to be found in Irish folk medicine in modern times. These include herbal remedies, as we just heard, the use of salves or ointments or poultices, the use of healing wells was another um, uh, uh, skill he had in his repertoire, and the use of healing verbal formulae or charms, incantations, as Dahi has told us. All of these elements are well attested to as part of the arsenal of Irish folk medicine in various parts of the country, as we find in you know, so many accounts in the National Folklore Collection. But what I want to focus on, particularly today, is just uh, one of um, Dean Kirk's uh, most impressive um, and spectacular healing feats. That is the first recorded instance of prosthetic surgery in, in Ireland, where Nuada, the king of the Tuhejedanan, actually loses his arm at the Battle of Moitura, first Battle of Moitura, it is. And because you can't have a king with this dreadful blemish, he can't be king anymore until Dean Kirk comes along and gives him a prosthetic limb made of silver, attaches it to his body, and within the matter of a few days, we are told that the arm and the hand are again uh, working perfectly. So um, a very, uh, a very spectacular feat indeed. What is particularly interesting here, however, is that Dean Kirk is specifically associated with leech craft, as I just mentioned, and the use of leeches in medicine. Elizabeth Gray, in her classic edition of the Battle of Moitur published in the 1980s, tells us that Dean Kirk was termed Aaron's sage of leechcraft in one medieval source. Now, the use of leeches, I'm sorry, this is, a, this is actually the Tandrigi idol, as many of you will know. Many people think that this is possibly King Nuada after he'd received his new prosthetic arm, holding on to whichever one it is, which isn't quite clear. People aren't absolutely sure of that, but I thought it was an interesting illustration to put in, in any case. Now, getting back to leechcraft, the Irish word for leechcraft is leacht, which can either mean leechcraft or the practice of medicine. And it survives, of course, in modern Irish in several terms, like tradeslea for a vet, uh, leabon for a gynaecologist, leasool for an oculist, and so on. Um, so uh, the use of leeches is something that goes back in human civilization and human culture probably several thousand years to, to the earliest civilizations. There does appear to be evidence for this. At the same time, leeches are still used today. This is an illustration I couldn't resist including of a man selling leeches at a market in Istanbul, in, in Turkey, just taken in the last couple of years. Now, it's not very clear, but that big plastic container in front of him does in fact contain leeches, which he's selling. Uh, I was showing this to a class uh, of my own in UCD uh, on one occasion a couple of years ago, and a student 
who happened to have a Turkish boyfriend, who happened to be a medical student, very kindly came back to me with a translation of the Turkish, which, again, I'll just read you out what he says. Uh, mantar, sorry, eczema is the first word there. Varis, I'm sure my Turkish pronunciation is, is terrible. Please bear with me here, anybody who might have some Turkish. Uh, varis, he missed out on, unfortunately. But then he goes on about mantar, the next word down, which is a fungal infection of the feet, which causes itching and skin irritation. Ayak kasintosi, whatever it is, is footage, bazar or hemorrhoids, akilar are pains and hurts, damar, whatever it is, is embolism or infection, and Dr. Mesut at the end is actually the name of the man who is selling these leeches. But lest we think that this is something that we find only in rather exotic and faraway places like Istanbul, this is, um, I wasn't able to scan the page unfortunately, but the Irish Times about 18 months ago carried a very interesting article on the renewed use of leeches in modern medicine, in Irish hospitals specifically. And it gives a fascinating description of, you know, the fact that leeches have three jaws and 100 teeth in each jaw, whatever it is. And uh, the account tells us the first leech was apparently used in medicine about 1000 BC. I think it might actually be longer ago than that. But in any case, and then the, uh, in the second paragraph there, the report continues, we import about 2,000 leeches per year at a cost of around 10 euro each. They're used in some of our larger hospitals in operations where there's a need to keep blood flowing in order that small blood vessels can repair without the blood clotting. Leeches are also useful in relieving a patient of congested blood. And then you can see further down the second last paragraph there, the report actually quotes Juno Shea, chief pharmacist at St. Vincent's University Hospital in Dublin. And this is the bit that I think is really interesting, who says that as one of the hospitals dealing with trauma, they maintain a stock of them, and that leeches can be very successful in helping to reattach a severed finger, for instance. So maybe D&K knew a thing or two after all. I don't know. We don't know whether he used leeches in his creation of this prosthetic arm. But nevertheless, it is at least of interest to see that you have leeches used in prosthetic surgery today. Um, and by the way, I should also say that I did have a little kind of a look around in a Google, and there's loads of uh, literature in the academic uh, canon as well, you know, to support this Irish Times report, as you would expect. I couldn't resist as well, again, I don't want to go into it, but the report in the Irish Times also wrote about the fact that silver-based substances of one kind or another were also making something of a comeback in modern medicinal techniques. So Nuada and his silver arm, which is, is kind of interesting just to, to point out as well. Um, and maybe with all of this going on, perhaps Dean Kirk's boast, which is also taken from um, uh, the medieval literature as translated by Elizabeth Gray, she writes about Dean Kirk saying, any man who will be wounded, unless his head is cut off or the membrane of his brain or his spinal cord be severed, I will make him perfectly whole in the battle on the next day. A very vast claim indeed, but maybe he had a point. Maybe Dean Cakes knew what he was doing. It's just a, an interesting uh, aside. In any case, I was also trying to make a connection between the use of leeches and folk medicine. And this proved rather disappointing for me because in the vast collections and indexes of the National Folklore Collection, I could find references to leeches, but nothing that actually told me that they were used for medicinal purposes. 
And then last Thursday, two weeks, I happened to be doing some field work, some recording uh, in Moat in County Westmeath. And there were a group of people who were telling me about folk medicine in this part of Westmeath. And a lovely woman called Mrs. Ellen Fox said, oh, by the way, we lived near water when I was growing up and my mother would always get leeches if somebody had a sore on their leg or wherever and she would attach the leech to the sore and the leech then would simply fall off. And she said she often saw this done at home. So in other words, it kind of completes the circle and the picture for us, which obviously I was very pleased with. In any case, uh, moving on. Uh, that's a reference to, to uh, Mrs. Fox's piece of information. But going on to my second example of parallels between early medieval literature and the kind of material we have in the academy here, this, as many of you will also know, is, of course, the first page of the Gospel of St. John from the famous Stowe Missal, dating to about the 9th century, probably early 9th century. And uh, a beautiful um, uh, piece of work written in Latin we're told on the RIA website that the Stowe Missal is a mass book of the early Irish church, small enough to be carried around for the use of a priest on his travels, and it may have been written in Tala here in County Dublin, we are told. In any case, um, the reason it's called the Stowe Missal is because for uh, the best part of 100 years it was actually in Stowe House in Buckinghamshire in England, and then it was returned to, the, uh, to Ireland and to the Royal Irish Academy at the end of the 19th century. Uh, but this is where our kind of journey from medieval text to mobile really comes in, in that the Stowe Missal, with a suggested date of the early 9th century, um, we have included in the Stowe Missal a number of prayers or charms or spells which are specifically for healing purposes. And these are translations from the uh, Latin and the Irish that you see here after Stokes and Strachan. Cures for a sore eye, for the ext extraction of a thorn from your flesh. Getting a bad stab of a thorn in the past could be potentially very serious indeed. In the days before antibiotics, you could get blood poisoning and you could die very easily. So it figures quite a lot in folk medicine and in early, uh, early medicinal tracts as well. In any case, the final charm there, or the final cure, is for disease of the urine. Now, these types of charms are still, as many of you will also know, very much to be met with in many parts of Ireland today, in the 21st century, um, the actual wording of the charm is usually not the same as you wouldn't necessarily expect it to be over this vast distance in time. But the actual technique used is clearly the same, and we're clearly talking about people using healing charms in the 9th century in pretty much exactly the same way as they use healing charms today at the beginning of the 21st century. The only difference being the way they access those charms, which is so often now by means of mobile phones. And that's where the mobile phone comes into, because people ring up for these charms, obviously, as you would expect them to do, and why not? In any case, just to look at a couple of examples, oh, sorry, this is just a definition of a charm, given by Jonathan Roper, an English folklorist, who has done extensive work on working out typologies of different uh, sorts of charms and so on, um, uh, dealing with English language material from England for the most part. But in any case, this is an example of a charm recorded uh, in the Dunqueen area of, or sorry, the Kirkogwina area of southwest Kerry, 
And uh, the, this, this charm is actually recorded in 1949, as you can see there in the information slip at the beginning, from a man who was aged 80 at the time, which means that he was born in about 1870 or thereabouts. So, you know, these things can go back a long way. But one of the charms that he gave to the uh, uh, collector, who is Joseph Odalik, from what I can see there, is actually a version of a charm for extracting a thorn, which you can see there at the, the bottom of the page. Um, it just It probably isn't awfully clear to you in the Irish text, but we're actually told that a poultice involving the use of toadstool should be put on the place where the thorn is, and that then these words should be said. Now, the words are somewhat obscure. They go as follows, Sgean na Sgeithe a droig, which means the knife of the, the blade, possibly, through the sand, it may be a reference to these, you know, those those sharp, long shells you can get in sand, which, you know, are, can actually prick you and do damage because the Irish name is somewhat similar to them. And then it goes on, Mach Og Murra, is it? August Rhin and Grosta, the son of Mary and the king of grace. And then the charm continues saying, I implore these three, these people to remove the thorn from the flesh in the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So you can see that not the same wording, but exactly the same idea, the same technique, the same type of use uh, in this uh, 20th century recording as you have in the Stowe Missal. Another example of the same, recorded by uh, an old friend of mine, Porrick McGrania, a school teacher in Bandalee in County Longford. And just to backtrack for one sec there, if we go back to the Stowe Missal for a moment, you can see that uh, the charm for a sore eye said, I honour Bishop Ibar of Wexford fame, I think, medieval bishop, who heals, may the blessing of God and of Christ heal thine eye, whole of thine eye. And then you can see in this version of a charm for a sore eye from County Longford, you have number four there listed as a prayer. You have James, quote I, Mary, quote I, Lord Jesus Christ, take the moat from my eye. So again, the same idea, obviously, as you get going right back to the ninth century. Now, there were many charms of various kinds in Irish popular tradition and as listed by Sean O'Sullivan in his Handbook of Irish Folklore. All kinds of uh, ailments and complaints of, um, uh, of a huge variety were actually treated uh, by charms. Um, among those charms, you have uh, a particularly interesting one, if we're talking today, which we are, about the interface between medieval literature and modern folk medicine. This is a charm recorded by a former student of Irish folklore, Maeve Neve Rin, who wrote a, a wonderful thesis on charms in Ireland, Orchie Leish Neheran, which is Healing Charms of Ireland, a number of years ago. And this is a charm that Maeve actually recorded herself from a woman in County Tyrone in the 1990s. And it goes as follows. As follows. It's a charm to heal a sprain. And it goes as follows, as Mary rode on a four-foot steed, the colt's foot she did bestride. Not very clear what that means. But anyway, it's bone to bone and vein to vein. And that's the important bit, the idea of this kind of formula, bone to bone, vein to vein, and everything in its right place. And all this is said in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. There are many other versions of this charm. Well, sorry, not a huge number, but there are quite a few other versions of this charm recorded in Irish for the most part, but there are also some examples in English from many other parts of the country, including the Galway-Mayo border in this case, where you have 
on the 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, the 8th line down, you can see the formula being used again. This is something that we're told Mary used to cure a sprain which Jesus uh, experienced. And you have the same idea of fe le fe, smur le smur, agus cre le cre. So in other words, sinew to sinew, um, marrow to marrow, and, and clay to clay is used in this healing charm as well. Uh, a version of from Black Lion and County Cavan recorded in the 1970s has a little synopsis of the same basic story we're told when our Lord was going to the mountain on an ass, he fell and sprained his foot. He sat down to heal and said bone to bone, sinew to sinew. So again, the same kind of formula being used. And guess who also knew this um, formula or this charm? Not actually Dean Keach himself, funny enough, but his son, Mirch, who is also described as having great medical prowess in the literature. This occurred as part of the whole business of giving Nuada his new silver arm after the Battle of Moitura. And in this case, the charm was administered to Nuada, as you can see here, by the son of Dean Keach, Mirch. And this is Elizabeth Gray's translation of this particular episode. And it goes, now knew there was being treated, and Dean Keach put a silver hand on him, which had the movement of any other hand. But his son Mirk did not like that. He went to the hand and said, joint to joint of it, and sinew to sinew, and he healed it in nine days and nine nights. Now, again, it's impossible not to see we're talking about the same healing technique here, undoubtedly going back to the 8th, 9th century, as, as has been suggested as an original date for the Battle of Moitura. So, you know, 8th or 9th century in early Irish literature, right up into the 20th century, and I'm sure into the 21st century, if we made inquiries as well. Uh, Meek, by the way, paid the price for this act of kindness because Dean Keoch was so annoyed at being upstaged by his son that he promptly killed him, but that's a whole other story. In any case, uh, this charm, of course, also just mentioning very, very briefly in passing, has also been found in the medieval literature of Germany, in old high German, going back to the, uh, the 10th century. It's something that was studied by the famous Grimm brothers, in fact, in their um, uh, in, in their writings. They were great 19... Not, not only were they collectors and publishers of folk tales, but also great philologists and scholars of their day. And this is actually the second Merseyburg charm translated from Old High German. And you can see it, the discovery of this charm caused huge excitement in Germany when it was discovered in the 1840s, because it's actually like a little window into old pre-Christian Germanic religion with all of these old Germanic gods mentioned and it sparked off a whole wave of charm scholarship but also you can see the telling formula in the third last line from the end there third and fourth be it sprain of the bone uh, be it sprain of the limb bone to bone blood to blood limb to limbs and so on so just really interesting parallels and some scholars have actually suggested that there's a charm in ancient Indian Sanskrit literature going back to 500 BC which also parallels this bone to bone charm so in other words tiny little items of tradition that have managed extraordinarily and against all the odds to survive over many hundreds of years very often have extraordinarily impressive and long pedigrees to the point I was trying to make. Anyway, the final point before I finish up, because I know the time is ticking on, another of the gems and treasures of the uh, Royal Irish Academy here, of course, is the Book of the Olees, which I know many of you are also familiar with, and Evie Nicgonache, and indeed Tommaso Concanon, and so many other people have written on this and done work uh, on the, the Book of the Olees as well. 
Written in Irish, it's described, again, by the Royal Irish Academy as an iconic medieval medical text translated into Irish from a Latin version of an Arabic text, the Latin translation having been done in Sicily by a Jewish medic there, I think, and then having been translated into Irish uh, and, and having found its way, obviously, um, uh, uh, to this part of the world. Um, it's, uh, as I say, Evie, uh, Nikonica and Tommaso Cancanon and a number of other people have done work um, on the, uh, the uh, Book of the Olees. But the reason that I wanted to mention it in the context of today's lecture is because it's a fascinating medical tract, which I would always mention to students as well. Uh, somewhat disappointingly, from the point of view of the student of folk medicine, it doesn't, however, contain any indigenous material because of the fact that it's an Irish copy of a Latin text, of a, of a Latin translation of the original Arabic text. But at the same time, where it does show a point of similarity with um, modern folk tradition is the fact that this book was in the ownership of the Oli family, who are the hereditary physicians to the great O'Flaherty family, um, of uh, West County Galway, and you can see there were one of many families um, who uh, were hereditary medics and physicians of one kind or another in various parts of the country. Now, the reason I wanted to mention it in the context of today's lecture is because there's a story, a version of which was collected in Karna in West County Galway by the schoolgirl named on the screen here on this particular page, who is Anya Nicanomara, who lived in Quillin in Karna in West County Galway and who recorded the story from oral tradition. The story is quite a long one, but it describes how one of the Olees was actually walking along the seashore one day and he was taken off, spirited away to the enchanted underwater island of E. Brassel or High Brassel or Bjog Orl, which is off the west coast of Ireland. And when he was there, he was given this wonderful medical treatise, this wonderful medical book, which he brought back to uh, the shore, to Ireland with him. And this formed the basis, we are told, of the Olee's spectacular and very highly regarded medical knowledge. Now, it has been suggested, and probably rightly so, that this story was probably at least partly invented by the Olee's themselves in order to add to their own status and mystique, which is quite possible. Having said that, it certainly, wherever it came from, it did enter the kind of canon of oral literature in West Galway, and it does act, that's just the last page of the story, it does act, however, as a particularly graphic example of the way in which medicinal powers or prowess are often attributed in popular belief to unusual or even otherworldly circumstances. Here we're talking about the more kind of esoteric and mystical aspects of healing and of medicine, which still indeed can be you know, found today in attitudes to medicine. Obviously, the healer is somebody who has enormous status and prestige in society for very understandable reasons, and this can express itself in beliefs and stories and traditions of this kind. Um, as I've written elsewhere, the power to heal, to heal still has an understandable prestige and status attaching to it, which was rationalized in the past by means of an alleged association with the magical or spiritual, as in the case of the Book of the Olees. And as I say, I don't want to go on too much longer, but examples of people who were believed to have acquired medicinal power through means other than the yeah, more boring, I suppose you could say, regulated official scientific channels included uh, groups of people um, who are believed to have uh, contact with uh, spiritual powers of one kind or another, whether they be conventional spiritual powers or the otherworldly powers of the fairies, 
as was the case with many wise men and women around uh, the country. Posthumous children, those who were born after their father died, again, an unusual and exceptional circumstance, and also a potentially disadvantaged circumstance, getting back to the point I was making earlier about the interesting compensatory element that seems to kick in in terms of many aspects of folk medicine. Uh, people who are born at particular times of the year, you couldn't be born at any old time of the year, but if you're born on a particular day, like quit, for example, this might give you medical um, or healing powers of one kind or another. The seventh son or daughter, still very, very commonly found, as we all know, not just in Ireland but elsewhere too but very very commonly found in Ireland and again a potentially disadvantaged situation uh, the possessors of certain surnames such as Kyo or Cal were also people who were believed to uh, by virtue of these you know th these specific names by virtue of the circumstances of their birth they were sometimes believed to have particular cures as well this is an example from the school's collection from County Louth near Drada which actually specifies a whole listing of such people in the area. Seven sons are in there. There's a posthumous child in there. Um, people who married each other who are of the same surname. These are people who are out of the ordinary. They were extra categorical, if you want to use an academic term. People who are a little bit unusual by virtue of some accident of birth or contact with the supernatural. They hadn't gone to regular medical school in order to attain their healing abilities. They were, as I say, exceptional in some way. And that's kind of the basic uh, point that I'm trying to make here. And this is what I'm tying back to the very dramatic example of this idea of those who have healing as being connected somehow with special circumstances, as we see in the story of the O'Lee man, Morocco Lee, who got this magical book of healing uh, from the other world. But anyway, I just wanted to finish off um, by uh, getting back to Moat, and no, no better place to finish, uh, in County Westmeath, two weeks ago when I was down there recording people. And one of the men I recorded, um, and I asked him if I could use his name here, today, he said, of course, absolutely no problem at all. This man is a, a posthumous, well, he's in his 60s now, but he was a posthumous child. He was born after his father died, and he is believed to have something that is very commonly associated with such people, the cure for thrush. And what he does is he breathes into people's mouths, which tends to be the infected area if you have thrush, and he says a prayer. And he is constantly resorted to by people in the area for this cure. Uh, the recording I made with him is fascinating because, you know, he's an extremely sensible man. And he says, look, I mean, I have no idea. I don't know if this it seems to work some of the time. I don't know how it works. But he is clearly a very generous and a very good-natured man. And, you know, very involved in all kinds of areas of his community. And his attitude is quite simply, if, if it can help, if I think I can help, obviously people are more than welcome to come to him. And, of course, he doesn't charge for his services either, which is another important differentiating factor between most folk healers and conventional or official medicine. In any case, I did an interview uh, with Larry Gillivan, and he was extremely interesting talking about his own particular gift. But just as we finished the interview, you will never guess what happened. Larry had his mobile phone with him, and the phone rang. Honestly, I'm not making this up. The phone rang, and it was somebody wanting to actually go to Larry for a cure for their baby who had thrush. So anyway, we have come on a long journey in the past nearly an hour um, from medieval manuscripts right through to, I, I can't make it any more recent than that, a couple of weeks ago, I suppose, in, in County Westmeath. But hopefully, you know, we, we have highlighted certainly the connection and the kind of parallels that exist between at least some of the earlier medieval sources and what you actually find still going on as far, part of popular tradition today. So thank you very much for that. Thanks, Lydia.